Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes, and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. Hello, I'm Matt Jolly. This is Politics Without the Boring Bits. Coming up on today's episode, happy birthday to schools. We mark 80 years since the 1944 Education Act with Dame Joan Bakewell, who was there at the time as a student. We speak to Britain's oldest teacher, Mr Jones, and we look to the future with Shadow Education Secretary Bridget Phillipson. Really fascinating chat about just the changing life of what happens in the classroom. We'll also have Manveen Rana and Matthew Bell taking a look at Rishi Sunak's victory lap after his Rwanda bill passed the Commons and Lee Anderson, I know it's hard to believe, made a wally of himself. And if you like what you hear on the podcast, don't forget you can listen to Politics Like the Boring Bits live and for free on Times Radio. That's on your DAB radio, on your smart speaker or download the Times Radio app. That's Politics Without the Boring Bits on Times Radio, weekdays from 10. Right, we begin with a plea. Please, please, please don't laugh at Lee Anderson. This is, a, this is a really serious moment. To vote no. I went into the no lobby to, to vote no because I, um, you know, I couldn't see how I could support the bill after backing all the amendments. It's a re- this is really serious. Lee Anderson, they're speaking to GB News, who, don't forget, pay him £100,000 to only do interviews with them. He resigned from his other unpaid job as deputy chairman of the Tory party to vote against the Tory party policy on Rwanda. I got into the no lobby. I spent about two or three minutes with a colleague in there. The Labour lot was all all giggling and laughing and and taking the mic. And I couldn't do it in my heart of hearts. I could not vote no. So I walked out and and come out. So I've abstained. This 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 is so serious. People were giggling. Giggling. He didn't vote against the Tory party policy that he resigned as Tory party chairman for because Labour MPs were laughing at him. Um, I wanted to vote no, but when I saw that lot in there laughing, uh, there's no way I could support them um, above the party that's, that's given me a political home. Stop laughing at Lee Anderson! Stop it, it's not nice! It's not nice! There'll be no, there'll be no laughing at Lee Anderson on this show. No giggling at all. Meanwhile, Lindsay Hoyle is explaining to Rishi Sunak how a seesaw works. Prime Minister, when I stand up, please sit down. But also, uh, Common Speaker Lindsay Hoyle turns out he hates it. He hates watching whose line is it anyway. And the next game is called Props. A very simple game. I'm going to give a prop to each of two sets of pairs. Can I just say... We don't use props in this house. And I will certainly ensure that if you do need reminding, I certainly will. No props. No props, just sea sauce. Manveen Rana and someone called Matthew on Times Radio. Yes, and first of all, we say hello to Manveen Rana. Manveen, where in the world are you? 
Well, I'm uh, I'm in Davos, as is everyone else apparently. So I'm I'm apologise for the background noise. I'm on, literally on the sidelines of uh, all these meetings going on. I, I've seen Rachel walk into a meeting room just behind me. Uh, she's everywhere. Is she she's being everywhere. mobbed like a rock star? <laughs> Pretty much. I've seen I've seen her in, all around Davos, and I have to say, the only Tory I've seen so far uh, admitted to me he was there hoping to get a job. So it's an barometer of politics at the moment. I yeah. won't name I won't name them, but yeah. um yeah. <laughs> well sorry, we know that Jeremy Hunt's there. You don't need to name him. Um, <laughs> um I haven't seen him to be fair. No, okay, very good. Well he's apparently coming later, but it's interesting that Labour have sort of been there all week and it's only now today They're that you've everywhere. got Jeremy Hunt and David Cameron telling him. Uh so Manvin's in Davos. Uh, this week's Matthew is Matthew Bell. Matthew Bell, where in the world are you? I'm in a very cold office in, in Middle England, as you described. Um, <laughs> w- wish I was up on a mountain. That sounds much nicer. Have you ever been to Davos, Matthew? I never have, actually, no. I've been put off by the idea of bumping into politicians. It just sounds to me like a party conference up a mountain, and I'm not sure that's an improvement. But maybe more cheese fondue. Anyway, let's move on and talk about uh, what's happening in the world of politics. Uh, Rishi Sunak, the morning after the night before, he gets his Rwanda bill through the House of Commons, so he held a riveting press conference. The House of Commons has spoken. The Conservative Party has come together. The Rwanda bill has passed. It's now time for the Lords to pass this bill too. This is an urgent national priority. The treaty with Rwanda is signed and the legislation which deems Rwanda a safe country has been passed unamended in our elected chamber. There is now only one question. Will the opposition in the appointed House of Lords try and frustrate the will of the people as expressed by the elected House, or will they get on board and do the right thing? It's as simple as that. He's got a plan. Labour don't have a plan. They take us back to square square one. An unusually good day for Rishi Sunak. We'll come to the polling in a moment, uh, uh, Manveen, but at least he got the bill through. If that, if that counts as a good day, um, I mean, he did get the, the bill through, but all of the analysis, all of the coverage of it is about the fact that the only reason it passed was because so many Tory MPs were worried about toppling the government. And I think for a lot of people listening, you sort of think, well, if a bill is so bad and is so hated by the full spectrum of the party, you've got, you know, the centrists don't like it. We know the rebels, uh, you know, from the more right-wing bit of the party certainly don't like it. We know that Rishi Sunak at one point didn't like it. Um, The fact the only reason it passed was because they were afraid it would topple the government doesn't really inspire much confidence. You sort of think, well, if it's the sort of bill that would topple the government, maybe it should. (laughs) Uh, It feels like it's inevitability anyway. Um, You know, I I don't think this is going to be a major win for them in the long run. He came out in his statement sort of saying, uh, Parliament has voted. This isn't even the end of the parliamentary process. You know, this will come back to the House of Commons and it doesn't feel like it's um, it's got a very smooth path ahead. Yeah, and it was notable he talked about the appointed House of Lords, which is clearly the sort of the playbook they're going to try and make out. Well, if I don't get what I want and what the public wants, not my fault, it's the unelected House of Lords because obviously the Tories don't, don't have a majority there. The key thing um, that we do need to make sure, uh, Matthew, is that we don't giggle at Lee Anderson. Now, Lee Anderson uh, was Conservative Deputy Chairman uh, until this week, appointed by Rishi Sunak, uh, and he resigned from that post so he could v- support amendments and then vote against the bill. Last night, he went into the uh, voting lobby to vote against the bill that he'd resigned for, from his job form to, to, to vote against it. And then, well, just horrifying scenes. The Labour lot was all, all giggling and laughing and, and taking the mick and I couldn't do it in my heart of hearts. I could not vote no, so I walked out and, and come out, so I've abstained. So no giggling, um, Matthew, because that's really, really, really not on. Um, well, the, the, the heart does bleed listening to Lee Anderson. Poor, poor Lee Anderson. I wanted to give him a, a cuddle. You know, he sounds so ganged up upon and bullied. Um, but And I've never agreed with anything he's ever said, but I have to say... The irony of this bill is that people like Lee Anderson are right that if this bill has any hope of ever working, i.e. as acting as a deterrent, the only way it could really succeed is if the far right had got what they wanted, which is for the bill to be fully implemented, which would in effect stop any individual migrants from challenging it in any uh, court of law. And that's the only way it could work. If, you know, cause As far as I can tell, this, this bill is all about stopping future challenges by individuals uh, and what they've got instead is a sort of watered down version which is the more reasonable uh, version but of an already batshit policy 
Um, but so what's going to happen is, OK, the bill will go to the Lords. It will probably go ahead and be implemented with any luck by the spring. So then the first flight will take off or, or, or rather the first migrants will be sent their uh, notices to get on a flight. The first thing they'll do is to challenge it and they, they can still challenge it. So we're not going to see successful deportations happening anytime soon. We're going to see a string of challenges. Um, so, so do you see what I mean? It has to be, it has to be all or nothing with this, but it cannot yeah. be this halfway house. Uh, so yeah, it's obviously a great day for Rishi in the sense that he hasn't lost authority of his party, but uh, it, 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 it's, it's hard to see how we're ever going to see any deportations taking place with this watered-down version. Uh, and Manveen, the interesting thing, the line that he uses again and again, Labour don't have a plan. Interestingly, it's the thing that comes up all the time in the focus groups that we do on the show. Last week we had uh, people who voted Conservative in 2019 now say they're going to vote Labour. They say they're going to vote Labour. They don't really know, when asked to sum up Rishi, uh, Keir Starmer in a word, they couldn't, some of them said they didn't really know enough about him. You know, they say they don't really know what it's all all about. And clearly that, you know, that that trick, you know, whether it's take back control or get Brexit done, repeating the concerns of voters back to them to reinforce those concerns is clearly a big part of that. Actually, it's not clear what what Keir Starmer's plan is. Yeah, and I think for Rishi Sunak, you know, he doesn't have very much option. That's probably the best he can hope for right now. I, I think the problem is people aren't voting for a Labour plan. No, you know, people aren't sure what it is. That's not the reason they're going to vote Labour. It's not their sort of, you know, bold manifesto. Nobody knows you know, exactly what policies they're going to be putting forward. The reason they're all voting Labour, according to the polls, is because they're so sick of, of the current government. And I don't think repeating messages about not knowing what Labour would do or going back to square one uh, are really going to deter them. You know, there, there's just sort of a sense of a collapse of confidence uh, in the current government, which I think is going to be very diff- difficult for them to to win back, however much they attack Labour or, or Labour's lack of policy. And it was sort of striking that actually Keir Starmer yesterday, again, you know, is sometimes the bigger the open goal, the less likely he is to... I don't know, I'm, I'm groping towards the sporting metaphor here. <laughs> to put put the ball in the back of the net. Uh, it was sort of striking actually yesterday, uh, Matthew, and I don't know if it ultimately made any difference to the outcome of the vote. But Rishi Sunak, really, and actually in a way we haven't really seen before, he 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 went for Keir Starmer, accusing him of being friends with his but Tahrir, which may or may not be what people are talking about down the dog and duck. But he had Tory MPs cheering him yesterday to the point that Lindsay Hall had to tick, tick them off. They were making so much noise. And actually showed that he's still got a bit of fight left in him in a way that, you know, Keir Starmer didn't really, he just asked the same question over and over again about Rwanda, didn't really insert himself into this this big story. Um, and actually, maybe Rishi Sunak's discovered that, you know, getting your own MPs on side is the, is the prerequisite to everything else later. Well, yes, it was funny listening him, to him just now giving his press conference, the tone of his voice. He was like a sort of disappointed primary school um, headmaster who's just quelled a rowdy interruption to a school assembly. You know, the exasperation, you could hear the sighing in his voice that he's finally managed to get even his own uh, party on side. Um, but but it's the sign of his greatest uh, weakness is that he is seen to be a weak leader. And that's what he's doggedly trying to resist and trying to fight with this bill, which is if he can just get this bill through, just get this one thing done, at least when it comes to the election, he can say he was the one who, as much as anyone can, tackle this problem of stopping the boats. Um, and, 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 in, and in that, you know, you've got to admire him. He's um, he, he's showing his, some clear blue water between him and Labour. So if, if uh, the voter who is most concerned about illegal immigration, if that's their main concern, they are going to vote for uh, the Conservatives at the election. So he's almost sticking to this one policy that he can possibly have some control over in order to... to but, but he knows already he's lost the election. The thing I was about to say, the, the, the point that, he was making, that uh, Matthew was just making about sort of Richie Sunak's strategy, this poll in the Times today, the YouGov poll for the Times, got the Conservatives down on 20%, which is the lowest they've been since Liz Truss was Prime Minister. But if you look under the, under the bonnet of that, you've got the um, fewer than half of the 2019 Conservative voters sticking with the Tories. 17% are going to Labour, but 25% of the people who voted Conservative in 2019, so a quarter of them are going to reform. And that's clearly, you know, the, the, the thing which is uppermost in, in the minds of Tory MPs and therefore Downing Street, that the, if they could get the 25% back, 
that then you know they might be competitive again yeah i mean i i don't think it would make much difference and i think actually reform have done quite well at sort of convincing people that, that you, you know if you do want to be able to send people back or you don't want them to come in the first place then the Tories aren't really achieving that. And I think the problem for them is that this sort of becomes not about what they want to do, but about their competence to do it. Um, and you know, you've got this endless wrangle over this bill, which everybody's criticised. Chances are it'll come back and there'll be even more problems. You know, as Matthew was saying, there'll still be sort of legal challenges. I get the feeling, you know, uh, when Rishi Sunak sort of sounded a little bit uncertain about when he'd call his own election, um, I think he's probably just waiting to be able to send one plane load of people to Rwanda and then say, we can go to the polls now. And I, I sort of think... I don't think many people would be, would be convinced by that because when you tally up the cost of this whole Rwanda policy, which is epic, in mm. order to send probably about sort of, you know, 50 people if they're lucky, but legal challenges being what they are, you know, I, I don't even think they'll get that over the line um, by the time the election happens. I think that's going to convince people that they're stopping the boats, um, especially because it hasn't so far. Yeah, you know, yeah. We're still seeing the boats coming. So I think they're pinning their hopes on looking like they're really strong on, on the uh, immigration issue, but if you can't manage, you know, if you can't manage to show any results for it, when I don't think, you know, one plane load at the most um, is going is going to do it. I mean, this has to go through the Rwandan Parliament too. There's an, a very long process around all of this. Yeah. Um, you know, how long can he stretch out before he has to go to the polls? So I I, I don't think people are going to think they're up to it, Even, however strong their rhetoric, however much they look like they're trying. Uh, if you can't perform, if you can't make the policy stick, then why would they vote for you? It's a big. Well, it's going to be the big question of the next election. Uh, Manveen, lovely to speak to you. Manveen Mala, live in Davos, but she's got to go off now and rub shoulders with international big wigs. Right, Keir Starmer, what's he all about? Anushka Astana from ITV News has been trying to find out. She spent three months with the leader of the opposition for a new documentary, which is on the telly tonight, and Anushka joins us. Hi, Anushka. Hiya. Three Not months? Not three months continuously. You didn't move in with him. <laughs> No, I didn't, no. Unfortunately not. Going into it then, what did you want to try and find out from him? And do you think that you did? Well, look, the kind of criticism of Keir Starmer is that people don't really know what he stands for and that he is a bit boring. And so what I wanted to understand is what are his values? What drives him? What would he be like if he was prime minister? And also... Is there a personality there that we're not seeing? And that was basically the aim. And so, you know, we, we try to be there at lots of kind of big occasions like the King's speech, like backstage before he gave um, his big conference speech in October. I was there when he was in Dubai for COP. But then also, you know, when he was going to Arsenal to watch his beloved football or at a cafe in his North London constituency to try and basically get to those points and figure figure them out. Um, he, he, he rolled his eyes a few times when I asked him about boring, but <laughs> he has to have an answer for this because we did a focus group with Savanta to try and really understand this a bit better. And it is one of the big things that comes out about him. People think he's a little bit dull. Um, and yeah, look, his answer on that is... When people come up to me in the street, they don't say, I want to be entertained. They don't say, tell me a joke. They say, do you know what it's like for me right now, that I'm really struggling? His argument is it's time for a more serious politics. And I think there's something in that. You know, in the focus group, people said, maybe it is time for a bit of boring. Um, but I but I still think he needs to do a bit more to get his personality out there. Yeah. And he gets very frustrated by the suggestion people don't know what he stands for. <laughs> But I mean, you're completely right. And we do. I mean, we do focus groups every month on the show, and the same thing comes up all the time. They think he's boring. They don't know what he stands for. He opposes everything. And actually, the other thing that comes up quite a bit is the, his uh, relationship with Jeremy Corbyn, and the fact that you know he was shadow Brexit secretary. He twice told the country to elect uh, Jeremy Corbyn. And one of the most fascinating bits I thought of the uh, of of your documentary was was sort of asking, well, why why did you campaign for, for Jeremy Corbyn? Let's take a listen to what he said. I didn't think the Labour Party was in a position to win the last election. I didn't obviously vote for Jeremy Corbyn in 2015 or 2016. On the contrary, I resigned you the whole, you travelled across the country to well, in, it, argue I, for him. You know, I thought that once that 2016 Brexit referendum had happened, I took the view that what then followed in the next few years was going to be felt for generations and that um, 
I thought it was my responsibility to play a full part in that. Do you accept that? Oh, we'll cut that off there. I just get. I mean, that's pretty extraordinary. That his defence now of saying elect Jeremy Corbyn was that he didn't think Jeremy Corbyn was going to win, so it was fine. Even though Jeremy Corbyn came closer than anyone expected just two years earlier. I thought, do you think that's going to wash? <laughs> I mean, I think the attacks on him for backing Jeremy Corbyn, given where he's taken the party now, are quite difficult for him. Mm. But But he's also... 20 points or according to the times today 27 points ahead in the polls so probably not bad enough that he can't get away with this argument i mean i do think it is quite difficult but what one of the conclusions i came to matt was that basically he's pretty ruthless i asked him at one point you've been ruthless to get to where you are now and he he's completely frank about it he was like yeah and for a purpose and that ruthlessness goes all the way back to when he was trying to become leader of the labor party um, you know, I don't think he ever was where Jeremy Corbyn is. I actually do think he's probably to the left of where he appears to be right now in terms of his values. Um, but there was only going to be one way to become leader of the Labour Party, and that was to, first of all, be loyal to Jeremy Corbyn, and secondly, to oppose Brexit, because that's what the membership of the Labour Party wanted. I mean, you know, he argued that he didn't. I actually asked him in another bit, which isn't aired in the show, about whether he regretted pushing for a second referendum. And he argued he didn't regret for it, regret it because it took some time for him to actually get to that position. And it was only because politics was, you know, Parliament was at an impasse. Um, but that's another thing that he did. Maybe he believed in it, but he wanted to become leader of the Labour Party. And that was something that he needed to do to do that. And now he wants to become prime minister and the thing he talked about more than anything else um, with every, you know, football metaphor he could squeeze in there <laughs> was that he wants to win and he will do whatever he thinks it takes to win. And I think they, they came to a kind of crushing defeat in a Hartlepool by-election, yeah. you'll remember, a few years ago. I think that was a real turning point for Keir Starmer, where he became even more ruthless. I mean, that said, we went back to Leeds, where he was writing for Socialist Alternatives, Leeds University. You know, he was writing about the authoritarian onslaught of Thatcherism and he was saying that collective bargaining wasn't left wing enough. And I was saying to him, like, are you still this guy? Are you still a lefty? And he was, he says, yes, he is still a lefty. And I think in his heart, he would like to be yeah, more yeah, radical. Yeah, yeah. It's but, really interesting. I'm trying to get to the heart of who of who the real man is. Yeah. Uh, is Matthew still there? Matthew, what do you make of all this? Are you convinced, convinced by that? It's true that, you know, behind the slightly dull facade, he has been quite ruthless in the past. But do you think that washes the Jeremy Corbyn defence? Well, I think it's time to make a selling point of the fact he is so uh, apparently perceived to be boring because that's what people want. There's nothing wrong with being a, a boring, steady, safe pair of hands. If that's how people are seeing you, then then make something of it. You know, it's it's time to turn it round and make that something good for him because that's clearly the the, the message he projects even when he tries not to. So um, I think you know, especially in comparison to Jeremy Corbyn, who when it came to it, people were too frightened to vote for him as leader of the country. Um, that we. We don't, we've realised we don't want revolutionaries like Jeremy Corbyn and, and Boris Johnson. We want centrists. And in, and in Keir Starmer's case, a centrist who, as, um, as, as we've just heard. Manveen Rana and Matthew Bell there, and you, you can catch Manveen on the Stories of Our Times podcast. One story told in depth each day, wherever you're listening to this. Up next, it's Happy Birthday to Schools. 80 years ago this week, the Education Act was introduced to Parliament. A core part of the progressive post-war consensus, it made universal secondary education free 
for the first time and put in place much of what we take for granted, even now in our modern school system, what, 80 years on. This was Rob Butler, Winston Churchill's education minister, speaking in the House of Commons, voiced up by a very, very professional actor. An educational system by itself cannot fashion the whole future structure of a country, but it can make better citizens. Plato said, the principle which our laws have in view is to make the citizens as happy and harmonious as possible. Such is the modest aim of this bill, which provides a new framework for promoting the natural growth and development not only of children, but of national policy itself towards education in the years to come. I think it is time to say that education should be the ally and not the dreaded competitor of employment. So the question, who will do the work if everybody is educated? We reply that education itself will oil the wheels of industry and will bring a new efficiency, the fruit of modern knowledge, to aid the ancient skill of farm and field. It's almost like we were there, wasn't it? Right, almost like we were there. Right, uh, let's get a little history lesson, uh, first of all, then, about how the Act came about and its aims. Uh, we could speak to the educationist, Sir Michael Barber, author of The Making of the 1944 Education Act. Hi, Michael. Hello, nice to talk to you and Matt, and thank you very much for putting the 80th anniversary of this great piece of legislation on the agenda. I really appreciate it. Well, let's go back then, because obviously, 80 years ago, 1944, anyone with even a, a loose grasp of history will know that was in the, you know, in the midst of the Second World War, embarking on a major education reform. You'd have thought, well, maybe the church might have had other priorities. What was the driving force behind it? How, how, did, it, how did it come about? Yeah, it took, it took, it took uh, three or four years to get it on the agenda, and Churchill was, for exactly the reason you give, very reluctant to have education legislation during the war before, because he thought it would be divisive. He remembered, he was old enough to remember the 1902 Education Act, where there had been massive controversy. So uh, there was consultation, first of all, by the Department for Education, which was then called the Board of Education in 1940 and 41, and then R.A. Butler, whose uh, speech we just heard, became... Uh, president of the Board of Education in 1941, and he spent the next two to three years consulting the churches who were fundamental to getting a compromise, the local authorities uh, and the teachers. But the, here's the, the thing, Matt, and this is why it was on the agenda in the war. The people of Britain wanted to not just fight to defeat Nazism, but to create a better Britain. So there was a whole... The, the whole um, thing on social security that, that, that came came uh, out in 1943 and created a welfare state. And then this ferment, there was a real ferment. You read the, the, the articles at the time, people were traveling the country, making speeches about education after the war. We're going to put behind us the low dishonest decade of the 1930s, as WH Alden called it. We're really going to do it this time. And there was a massive groundswell of support, supported by the Times newspaper, by the way, and the Times Education Supplement. So really strong support. And Butler tapped into that. Um, and then crucially, in 1943, when he was ready, he went to see Churchill. And he thought he was going to talk to Churchill over dinner, but Churchill just held forth and talked about all the things Churchill talked about. Then he thought he talked to Churchill after dinner, but Churchill went off uh, and watched a film about, Soviet, uh, about the Tsars in Russia. Uh, and then he hoped he would see him in the morning. And he finally, this is a crucial little detail, Matt, he, he, in the morning, he got in to see Churchill. Churchill was sitting, knees up, uh, leaning back in a four-poster bed, bed covers uh, over him, <laughs> cabinet papers on his lap, and a big cat on the Prime Minister's feet. And Butler goes in, and Churchill's opening line was, Butler, you've done less for the war effort than that cat. To which Butler replied, and this is this is this is a great politician at work. To which Butler replied, "I'm not sure about that, Prime Minister, but it is a very beautiful cat." And then he went on <laughs> to tell him, "Have a white paper and then an act." And Churchill grunted that it was okay, and Butler left. So these. So are the he was almost doing it despite Churchill, rather than because of him. He was sort of yeah. trying to get it around him while he was understandably focused on being the great war leader. Yes, because he, he, he had to get, get he, he had to get he knew he had to get the prime minister's support, uh, but but he didn't have to have his active support because he knew Churchill was completely obsessed by the war, rightly. Um, and also remember Butler and Churchill in the thirties had fallen out because Butler was one of the, the appeasement team, mm. uh, uh, and so he was very lucky to be in this position. And when Churchill appointed him in nineteen forty one, Churchill said to him, Butler, 
I want you to teach the children that Wolf won Quebec. And Butler said, well, it's not really the kind of thing secretaries of education do. And Churchill said, well, do it by example then. So he, he wanted the schools to be a source of patriotism, yeah. but he wanted controversy. But Butler had done a brilliant job of consulting the various churches and stakeholders and uh, bringing the controversies, not completely under control, but generally uh, got them lined up so he could introduce the Act 80 years ago this week. And take us through then what the changes were, because pre this you had what one one percent of the population went to university, only twenty percent even stayed on beyond fourteen, and it sort of set the system of primary and secondary education that we know now. It created the grammars, the secondaries, the secondary moderns, which you know have obviously fallen away since then. But but what was the system they were they were putting in place? Yeah, you, you, no, you got you got the facts right. So it's only eighty percent of kids didn't do any schooling beyond uh, beyond the age of fourteen, and the twenties and thirties have been very frustrating for education reformers because there'd been the cuts in the early twenties, the cuts in the early thirties. The nineteen thirty six Act had introduced uh, secondary education up to the age of fifteen, but had so many exceptions that it didn't really uh, make any difference at all. And that's what Butler was referring to in the speech when he talked about jobs in uh, you know, the, the employers in agriculture and so on. Uh, but then, so so the, the big things, first of all, raising the school leaving age to, for compulsory secondary education to the age of 15 uh, and later 16. So both of those were in the act, although it took 20 odd years before the, 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 they got the school leaving age to 16. The, the, the tripartite model that you described of uh, most kids going to secondary modern, about 20% going to grammar school and a few going to technical education, although that never really got off the ground after. Um, and the settlement, which uh, I won't bore your listeners with, but it was very important to find a way of bringing the church schools into the state system in a way that respected those churches, but also enabled the state to, to spend money and required the churches to uh, open their, their their schools to people of other faiths. And then just looking back over the last 80 years, and clearly there have been changes in the, you know, the move to comprehensive schools and so on. This was hugely a, clearly a huge big bang moment in education in this country. What have been the other big bang moments since? And, and are we due another one? Um, well, that's, that, that comes to the last question um, last, but the, yeah, the, 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 the 1944 Act led to the big expansion in the in the 50s and 60s uh, with the baby boom, of which I was a part, incidentally, uh, and uh, big expansion, uh, growth of the education system. And then in the 70s, people began to have questions. Uh, the 11 plus had been discredited. The only thing that influenced the curriculum in schools was the 11 plus for primary and public exams for secondary Um and people began to have doubts. Jim Callaghan expressed them in a famous speech at Ruskin College in 1976. He said, uh, employers keep telling me that, that the young people they meet aren't ready for the world of work. Uh, Margaret Thatcher built on what Jim Callaghan did. And the, the big turning point after the 1944 Education Act was the 1988 Education Act that Kenneth Baker took through in the third uh, Thatcher term, which introduced the national curriculum, introduced national assessment, uh, devolved budgets to schools, weakened the local education authorities, abolished the Inner London Education Authority. So those are the two big bang moments. I was there as part of the Blair government administration doing reforms in the first and second Blair term. And that was another big thing, the the academies uh, that, that we introduced then, the big focus on improving the quality of literacy and numeracy in primary schools, the willingness to tackle underperforming schools when, uh, rather than uh, just hoping they would get better, so, but but we were we were in um, the new system that had been created by Baker that we then refined. But we did act very vigorously on that. Are we due for a big bang moment now? I think the um, the the English education system has never been performing better in international comparisons. We're fourth in the world in reading in uh, uh, at primary age. Uh, we're in the the top uh, fifteen countries. Uh, on science, maths, uh, the national language uh, for 15-year-olds. They've never been higher. And I think it's because in spite of all the party political controversy, there's been a consistent threads of policy from Baker through Blunkett and Blair uh, through Gove uh, uh, and then up to the current time. The big challenge now is improving skills in the workforce. And the current government, although they don't talk about it very much, have actually done rather a lot on that. And that's quite good.
So that's where the big bang that's needs where we to be. Are. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Michael, really good to speak to you. It's fascinating. It's Michael Barber, author of The Making of the 1944 Education Act. And like you said, he's been in and, in and around the education world for a long time. Well, one of the people who benefited from the 1994, sorry, the 1944 Act was Joan Bakewell, Baroness Bakewell, who was 11 years old when the Act was put into law. It changed my life. It made it possible for me to go to a grammar school. Schools, of course, as you know, were divided in those days very rigidly. And grammar schools in Stockport were fee-paying. And my parents were on the cusp of just being able to afford it and were wondering whether it was worth it or not. Um, and along came the bill. And suddenly I was able to get past the 11 plus and go to a grammar school for free. And that made a difference. And tell me what it was like then, young Joan Bakewell, what, like the age of 11, arriving at this new dawn of your education, if you like, at our grammar school? Well, there were a whole clutch of us who had passed the 11 plus and got access to, to a school that we wouldn't otherwise have gone to. Um, already in residence at the school were fee-paying um, children whose parents had saved up and wanted them to go. So we were the sort of um, nouveau riche, as it were. We were the <laughs> arrivals who hadn't got any money. Um, but we we clung together and we felt very proud that we'd made, made to this move, that we were pioneering something new. We were inclined to, um, the, not left-wing views, but to permissive views, to views of tolerance and inclusiveness. So um, it fired me up in terms of ideas. Why was I there when others weren't? My sister did not pass and didn't go. So it was very divisive in terms of a family, the actual dynamics of the family. She felt rejected. Um, my mother said things like, which were unforgivable, if Joan can do it, you can, which of course, as any parent knows, is a deadly thing to say. Wow. I suppose that, that's a sign of, you know, the, the, what came later with the move to comprehensives is, uh, you know, is another big change that happened in, in society. You went on to become head girl, though. How did that feel, being the sort of the, the interloper in this world? And then, then you ended up as head girl at the grammar school. I was projected into this world by my parents' ambition for me. So they backed me to the hilt. They helped me with my my homework, they made sure that I did it, that I attended, that I didn't miss. So they fired me up with a general wish to do well and to achieve in order to acquire their approval, really, not just simply from a love of learning. Though that, that came much later. So I, I was out there to impress my parents and please them. Uh, and one of the ways of doing that was to get on in the world. I was also, by temperament, enormously pleased to be among lots of lively, interesting girls some of whom I have Christmas cards even to this day. Um, and we were all pleased to be there. So we were all excited by the idea of what a school meant. We weren't bored by it or we kept that game letter, but we were fired up by a general enthusiasm to do well. We set out lots of tables for ourselves to um, note our marks. How, did, how well did we do? Did we do better than so-and-so and so on? So we were enormously competitive, um, not from a love of learning, but just from a wish to score over other people. <laughs> um, Joe, you never thought about going into teaching? No, I never did that. I mean, I, I do now have a role at Birkbeck University university where I'm the president and I I am uh, I did try my hand at supply teaching when I was between jobs and I was incredibly poor at it not because I didn't love the subject but because I couldn't keep discipline and I was a sitting target for rebellious students who uh, teased me got out of their desks made noises banged their lids of their desks generally made my life misery I had no idea how to um, keep discipline. And of course, I realised I hadn't been to a teacher training college. I'd not learned to do any of that, so it's hopeless. Joan Bakewell there, who never thought about going into teaching because she couldn't control the class. Well, let's hear from someone who could and can. Britain's oldest teacher, Eric Jones, Mr Jones to you. He became a pupil in 1946, just after the Education Act was passed. He then went into the classroom as a teacher for the first time in 1969. He's, he's tried retiring twice. It was COVID that got him back into the classroom. He's still going now, aged 82. He takes us back to what life was like in the 1960s. I mean, there was a chalk, a piece of chalk on a blackboard, a lot of very outdated textbooks, uh, uh, exercise books, which everybody, as you probably remember, was thrilled to bits to get a brand new one of at the beginning of the year. And then it got tattier and tattier during the year. The technology was virtually non-existent. It was pretty primitive by today's standards, but we didn't know that, did we? Mm. 
we just got on with it. And uh, tell us about sort of discipline. Were the kids naughtier then? I mean, you had corporal punishment, presumably, so you were able to... Uh... I'm afraid we did, yeah. I, I joined in 1969, and by about 1972, I was given permission by the head to administer one or two strokes of the cane. It was unquestioned. We didn't even think about it, to be honest. I mean, it happened when I was at school, and we got a new deputy head at the school where I was a head of year. And the new deputy head said, we are phasing out corporal punishment from next September. And that was because that was the way politics and the thinking and the nation and good sense was going in that direction. Um, of course, a lot of old teachers who've been teaching since God was a boy couldn't believe it. You know, how, how, do, how do we control the, the, the children then if we can't hit them? Um, but they weren't naughtier. They were just as bloody awful if they wanted to be badly behaved uh, as they are now sometimes. But funnily enough, it was no better or no worse. It was some kids are good, some kids are bad, some teachers are brilliant. And I was gradually learning my craft, you know, how to walk into a class and make it quiet the minute you walk in. How do you do that? I was asking that question for years. I learned it over many, many years. Now I'm not telling anybody else. I was about to. Oh, I was about to ask you. I was about to ask you to give it away. <laughs> give it away. In that period, from you start, what you started as a pupil in 1946, so just a couple of years after the, the the act that we're talking about came into force, and you've covered the full gamut since as a pupil and as a as a as a as a teacher since then. Teacher, as a deputy head teacher, and a deputy now, head, and everything you've had to deal with, and offset and all that. And the problem was just sort of thinking, how many. Sections of state, how many schools ministers, how many, you know, new new education policies or it's all going to be exams or it's not exams or it's learning by rote or it's not or it's practicals or it's coursework. And how do you teach children to read properly? Yeah. And all of that. Is it, have any of them made a big difference? In the 1940s and 50s, the kids who went to grammar school did GCSEs or we called them O-levels then, and they left with some qualifications. That was probably less than 12% of the population as a whole. All the kids who went to secondary modern school blundered their way through to the age of 15 and then left. Now, under the comprehensive system, whether you like it or not, in terms of ability, not 12% of the population leave with qualifications, but only about 12% now leave without. Let's look at the future of education now with the person who wants to be the future education secretary for England. Labour's Bridget Phillipson joins us. Hi, Bridget. Hello, good morning, Matt. Um, I mean, looking back over the last 80 years, clearly education has changed a lot. So I was talking to uh, Michael, Sir Michael Barber a moment ago and asking him about the big bang moments. What for you were the, were the big moments which have shaped our schooling today? Yeah, I heard your conversation with Sir Michael Barber, which was fascinating. And that moment in 1944 and what came after, I think, put education really front and centre of national life. It was a turning point, really, in terms of how we recognise that education is central to opening up opportunities for all of us as individuals, but actually for all of us as a society as well. I would, I would add into that, I think, some of the changes that we then subsequently saw in the 60s in particular under the Wilson governments, which further opened up opportunities to education, especially higher education, were incredibly important and created opportunities and life chances and access to education that had never been there before, especially people for, for people from working class backgrounds. And, you know, we still face lots of challenges around that even today. Yeah, it was, it was striking, actually. I was thinking that, that if you think of the changes in sort of primary schools going through in the in the 40s, fast forward 20 years, it's the same cohort then, you know, they enjoyed the changes that, that took place in in, uh, in sort of university education in the 60s. So what what would be, if, if uh, you find yourself sitting in the, the Department for Education after a general election, what's, what's the big bang that Bridget Phillipson wants to see in education? Well, there's a lot that needs to change and there are many strengths alongside that, particularly in the teaching profession that I believe we can build on. But I think first and foremost, it's about putting education back front and centre of national life. It's become a peripheral issue, I believe, in recent years under the Conservatives. In the time that I've been Shadow Education Secretary a little over two years, I've had five, I've faced five education secretaries, one who lasted about 36 hours. So it hasn't been a big issue for the Conservatives. It will be a big issue for Labour if we win that election. And I can think of no greater privilege than to be Education Secretary in a Labour government, because 
it's how we create those opportunities for our children and young people. But it's how we also make sure that right throughout all of our working lives, that there are opportunities to take on new skills, to learn as we go as we go through our life. And I don't believe learning and a love of learning and education need end when we finish the, that formal phase of our education. It's about giving people the opportunity throughout life to learn more, to do more and to take on more. Because sadly, for too many of our children and young people, it doesn't work out first time around. And we have in recent years started to see a widening of that attainment gap between our, our more affluent, the more affluent children and um, more disadvantaged children. So that's why for me, uh, if I were Education Secretary, I'd have a really big push around the early years in particular. Unless we get that right, we are not going to succeed as a nation. Do you agree with uh, Sir Michael Barber? And I take your point about we have had a lot of p- different people uh, in the Department of Education. Actually, there has been consistency in the policy, and a policy largely shaped by Michael Gove in opposition, and then when he came in, that actually... Um, it's, it's important to acknowledge that one of the success stories of the last decade or so has been the improvement in uh, attainment in English schools. And actually, if you look at those international comparisons that Michael Barr was talking about, English schools doing better than, for instance, Wales, which where Labour have won uh, education throughout that period. Do you acknowledge that there have been improvements over the last decade? Uh, you know, whether it's reading, science, maths, never been higher was how Michael Barber described it. I mean, I had, I, I had and I have lots of disagreements with Michael Gove in terms of the approach that he brought to education, but I don't think you could question his determination or energy in making education a big part of that first term of that Conservative Lib Dem government. But I also think that some of what Michael Gove did, take, example, take for example phonics, that was something that began under the Labour Party that was then continued and rolled out under the Conservatives. So I think there are clear examples where longer term consistency of policy making and looking at the evidence in terms of what is effective in delivering better life chances for children really is important and can work well. I do think, however, there is a degree of complacency around England's standing internationally and where we are now. But, you know, we've started, we, the, the, the kind of raw numbers demonstrate that we are slipping backwards in every way. And, you know, when we look at the fact that fewer we, young people... Are we slipping backwards? Yeah. Or are we going up the international league tables? Well, the rankings are partly a factor of, for example, the number of countries that participate. But in terms of the raw scores, in terms of how well we are doing, we are slipping backwards uh, in every in every area, sadly. Uh, I think where you look, for example, at reading, I think phonics has been an important development. But what worries me is that what those scores also demonstrate is that fewer children are really enjoying reading. And I think that should be a cause for concern because I want children to really love reading as well as being, you know, having a strong foundation in terms of the comprehension of all of it. I would say alongside that picture that we've seen, and you talked about Wales, we can't expect schools to do everything and schools don't exist in a vacuum. So the wider pressures that schools are facing at the moment, especially acute in places like the northeast of England, where I'm from and in Wales, are around rising levels of child poverty the fact that too few children are arriving at school at all because we face a really big crisis around persistent absenteeism. And when they are there, increasingly we see too many children who are hungry, who are not getting the support that they need at home because of the pressures that families are under and are experiencing more and more issues around their health in terms of mental health and well-being. And that's why I've set out plans to provide breakfast clubs in all of our primary schools, provide more mental health support in our schools and also to cut the cost of the school day. So cutting the cost of school uniform, which is becoming increasingly a problem for, for families. It's about what government does in its entirety, that wider shift we need to see in our society. And schools are brilliant. Education transforms lives. It certainly did mine. But we can't expect schools to do everything alone. But it's interesting. You say you can't expect schools to do everything. And yet the big ideas from uh, uh, the Labour Party are are precisely that, feeding uh, children in breakfast clubs. The, the, the biggest idea we've had related to schools from Labour in the last week or so was uh, teachers teaching children how to brush their teeth. This isn't about... Uh, I don't know, changing the exam system to prepare children for the, the world of work. The, the, you know, you're talking about the scale of the, the, the challenges the country faces and, you're, and yet your solutions to those problems are breakfast clubs and brushing teeth. Well, we've got plenty to say where it comes to making sure young people are well prepared for what comes next. And if we win the next election, we'll have an expert-led review of the curriculum to address precisely that question. So you don't actually have it. So in terms of 
going into a general election, you're not going to tell people what you would, not voters, what you would do when it comes to exams, when it comes to the curriculum. That's all off to after the election. No, we'll we'll launch an expert-led review of the curriculum if we win the election. But I think people have had enough of politicians imposing their whims and anecdotes on the education world. We've had a lot of that under the Conservatives. Why not do the review now so people voting at the next election know what a Labour government would do to the curriculum and to the exam system? That seems odd to go into an election saying we haven't got a plan, we'll, we'll come up with one once we're in office. Because I have a wonderful team, but sadly we're not in the Department for Education and we don't have the capacity to do that work and the scale and depth that but is actually, required. Is it... I do think that. No, I do think that is the serious work of government. It's not the work of opposition. And you know, to that point, you about don't the think it's the job conscience... of the opposition to have a, to tell voters what you would do to the curriculum and the exam system before you get elected. Well, we set out the principles that will be driving it. For example, that all young people get a strong foundation in the basics, that we make sure there is a broad curriculum that allows for young people to have access to music, sport, art and drama. We would move on that quickly. We would change the accountability measures that schools are judged by to make that a reality at secondary school very quickly. Uh, I want to make sure that there is more flexibility within the curriculum for local circumstance, for example, that young people see their lives reflected in the curriculum that young people get a stronger foundation in digital skills, speaking and listening skills, what people often call oracy. But in terms of setting that out in a, in a document, in terms of what it will look like for the national curriculum, I, I'm not, I don't think it's for shadow education secretaries to be in the business of writing that. It has to be done properly and thoroughly and carefully. And that is precisely what we'll do. But to the point around, you know, the wider measures we're setting out around what we, what we would like schools to be doing to support families, they're very popular measures because every school I visit in the country will tell me just how difficult it is at the moment with the pressures that families are under and how children are arriving at school hungry, about the pressures that young people are facing around their mental health. And it's very popular amongst uh, school leaders and teaching staff to be suggesting measures that would address all of that and actually that would allow them to focus more on what they came into the job to do, which is teaching, driving up standards in our schools and making sure young people are well prepared what comes next sadly too often yeah. schools are having to step in and teachers you know literally putting their hands into Doing their the pockets of, to provide yeah, to provide the basics so Doing it's about work government working with schools and schools working with parents and families it's about that shift i believe we need to see so it's a genuine partnership where we work together to deliver better for our children and that's all we've got time for on today's episode. Don't forget you can get in touch with any questions, comments or indeed complaints about my face on the logo. Just email matt at times.radio. But for now, from me, Matt Chaudy, it's goodbye. Goodbye. 